back in 2015, according to this piece, there were 80 of them. And when there were 80 of them, folks was like, what? Like we have gone out of control. Can someone please tell Jeremy Grantham that this happened? Yeah, yeah. Right <laughs> um, Get GMO online too. Yeah. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. There he is. Well, you got a Twitter handle on your shirt. Life at P.F. Chang's? I'm, is that a P.F. <laughs> Chang's <laughs> I know how you roll, man. Gosh. Really like the PF Changs. Who knew? I like all free shirts. How you doing, What's up, man? Good. Better now. Better now that I'm getting some Dougal's time. Samesies. Samesies. The uh, the year's going by quickly thus far. I mean, it's almost the end of January coming up here. Yeah, I I mean, you started talking about volatility. My portfolio is uh, having lots of fun over here. I I don't even feel it. You you feeling some heat or something? Uh, probably. You know, I, I check the portfolio relatively frequently. During uh, times like this, I don't as much. I um, I check oh, cool. the market. I check the market a lot, but it's just it's not. I start to get ideas, and so like I don't want I don't want to get ideas. Um, I don't get ideas about selling. I get ideas about buying. <laughs> um, yep. But so I don't I don't quite check it as much. But I'm sure it's uh, I'm sure it's not in a good place. Let me show you, uh, speaking of ideas, man, I, I've mentioned both these on the show and we don't give investment advice, we give research recommendations. Oh man, I have some, what's the right emoji? Like I'm pretty dang excited about the current valuations for BABA and Intel, man. They have struggled recently. I've been watching them for a long time and like they just keep getting cheaper and I go, oh my goodness. So let me talk BABA for just one second. Charlie Munger and I share a lot of investment philosophies, but we very rarely share investment picks because he likes stuff that's more expensive than I'm comfortable. I mean, he's a value investor, but he's a quality company guy who yeah. is not buying deep value stuff. I, I, I would I would even say this is probably too much of an overstatement, but he buys semi-growth companies yeah. at value prices. Yeah, it's the it's the great company at good price rather than the okay yep. company at bargain basement prices that yep. whole evolution that happened that he really uh, led buffett to anyway when it's one of munger's picks that looks cheap enough for me to get excited about like that's a whole new i'm not used to that world that's baba right now man it is dirt cheap yeah i'm i've like surpassed my uh my prescribed baba allocation and that that one's hard <laughs> just I, I gotta that's where i start to get ideas too that's not even like my model portfolio but i'm like it's it look it's so tasty it, like it's like i'm on the side of a plexiglass window looking at like a nice seitan set of wings you know because yeah. i'm vegetarian um <laughs> but i can't quite get to them it's like the yard house is right there well uh folks i mean if you're looking for something to do this week again diggles you're probably right i don't need any ideas at this point but i just watched it i watched that thing i had like three target prices uh the last was 112 and 112 was like it's never gonna get there but if it does 
get excited and it got there this week and i was like oh my goodness uh i'm excited so yeah. let's shift gears let's go to listener mail we got listener mail from kyle who's a multiple time emailer and we appreciate that greatly um this is about uh cars and supply chains and everything else it's a great article the wall street journal had this week um about the Maverick truck, which is a, a newer entry-level pickup that Ford has. Now, you'll remember that Ford, a couple years back, got rid of basically all their cars except for the Mustang because the profit margins were either basically zero or they're losing money on it. But what's happened is the entry-level car market has disappeared for your average American. Like, it just doesn't exist. It's all about SUVs and everything else. So they have this cheaper option, Maverick, and they had to turn off pre-orders for this thing because they can't make it fast enough because the demand is so great. Wow. Here's the stat that just blows my mind from this, and we don't have to talk about anything more than this. The number of weeks of income needed to purchase a new vehicle hit a high of 43 on average in December, meaning your average person to buy a new car would have to spend 43 weeks of salary to buy the thing. Now, typically it's financed over what, five years? I mean, you're approaching 20% of someone's salary to buy a new car. That's outrageous. Like 10 months of income? Yeah. That's outrageous. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's a, that's prohib, that's fully prohibitive. Or if it's not prohibitive, it should be. Like that's another overstretching type situation. It, it's absolutely prohibitive. I don't, I think some people might not realize it. It gets buried in the, I have this monthly payment for whatever. That average monthly payment is up nearly 20% uh, from December to $688. I thought, uh, like, I thought you had to buy a Mercedes or something or a Tesla to have an average monthly payment of seven hundred bucks. But I don't buy new cars, so I'm just disconnected from this market. Uh, you fly across the country to buy old cars. Yeah, like that that breakdown that I got to take to the shop on day one, pretty much. Um, anyway, <laughs> good good news. You could, one of your stock picks could actually help you to get there. So yeah, there we go. I could get some towing. I could. There we go. Um, <laughs> It's a it's a pretty quality article. I it's one of those I looked past the headline five times because I was like, who wants to read about affordable trucks? But there's some tidbits in there that are uh, fascinating. And then there's one other thing I got to tie up from last week, Dougals. You you sent me that Goldman piece piloting through, yep. where uh, <laughs> you claimed they claimed mean reversion was uh, not happening anymore. And uh, you yeah, like I read it. I I did a deep dive. Let's just say they have a sentence in there that says there's a 26% chance that uh, Schiller Cape is mean reverting and a 74% chance that it's not at current valuations. Their conclusion for this mean reversion thing basically says we're at a highly elevated point and it hasn't mean reverted yet. It's hot garbage. Uh, well, I mean, so now I know I didn't fully appreciate it last week that you were just trying to get me riled up. Oh and yeah, I, I so appreciate that. Like in retrospect, I'm so thankful for that. But at the time, I was really flustered. I, I was really like, <laughs> I know a lot of people that work at Goldman Sachs. They're smart people. I was like, what, what, the, what's going on here? It's hogwash, yeah. as yeah. I like it, to say. It is. I like to get you riled up. It's a lot of fun. So yeah, a lot of fun you're for me. way smarter than I realize. All right, fishbowl diving time. There was this Farnham Street piece that I enjoyed. That, that came out recently, playing on hard mode. So you're a video game person, question mark, uh, historically. I mean, I'll try. I'll pretend right, to be. Well, so 
the, <laughs> the idea of playing on hard mode is back in the day, I don't know if video games are still this way, but you could select different modes in which you play. So you're like, if you're a beginning and you're starting off, you're like, I'm going to play easy, then I'm going to play medium, then I'll play hard, right? And the game gets harder and harder, right? But you're gone. The point yeah. of the title here was they're saying that oftentimes people will put themselves in situations where they are playing in hard mode, maybe even uh, definitely unnecessarily, but maybe even unintentionally in their own life. And so uh, the, there's this Sun, Sun Tzu quote, you ever read Art of War? No, I really need to though. Oh, you got to. It's real short too. I would recommend it. It's not an annual read for me, but it's probably like a every three years type yeah. things. Like I'll pick it up. So there's this quote they put in there that's every battle is won before it's ever fought. Sun Tzu. You can you can kind of get the gist of it. So it's like, but uh, the way that they they talked about this in there is that we end up again putting ourselves in these situations like borrowing too much money, right? Sometimes we're being penny wise, pound foolish when we rush yep. in to do the cheap option. Like someone's like. I need a, I think the example they gave was I need a lawyer and this lawyer is 500 bucks a month, but now I'm going to pay for the, the $200 lawyer a month. And you end up getting three of them because they yeah. keep making mistakes. Right. And so you end up paying $600. So it's just, we, we keep putting ourselves in situations like this. I think it's an interesting concept. I think it's a real concept. And as I was abstracting it out, it's like when in investing, I think this is also an important concept. And especially at times where things start not to go so well which for some people is their, their portfolios right now, right? There are many strategies or thought processes that, that people um, start to implement, start to think about times like this, like, how do I hedge? How do I exit? How do I profit? Right, dot, dot, dot. And it's not that those are bad inherently. I think it's kind of like we said last week, you should just know what the heck you're doing. Yep. And oftentimes, I think what, what's not asked during those times is the question of how do I make sure that whatever's bad right now is only as bad as it needs to be and not any worse. Right. Yeah. And sometimes as bad as it needs to be is just let it like, just let it be right. As my, my good friend, the Beatles, I actually don't know the <laughs> names of the people in there. So I'll just say it's one person, my good friend, the Beatles, the Beatles one side is just like, let it be right. So I'll pause, <laughs> get, get your reaction. So, uh, so many good thoughts in there, Diggles. I mean, one of the things that I find when people call me and they're freaking out about their portfolio, 80% of the time, this is how it goes. I go, okay, what, what account are we talking about? Like this, is this pre-tax, post-tax? Is this retirement funds? Is this whatever? I, I won't say 80%. I'll say more often than not, people go, this is retirement funds and I'm not retiring for 20 years. And I go, well, why do you freaking care? You should be rooting for the thing to go down. Like you should literally be rooting for the stock market to crash 80%. So you can buy at cheaper valuations for the next 20 years so you can make tons of money. Like what are you freaking out about is the context I would add. Is this money you need in three months? If so, and it's dropping drastically, that means you invested it with the wrong approach currently. And let's talk about how we re revise that and protect against that. If this is stuff you probably don't need for even three years, like chill. And if it's 20 years, just don't look at the thing. If that's how your mind is set, like there's no reason to. So I find there's these artificial freakouts um, a lot of the time that, that if you have the right perspective, don't even matter. I love that. I love that, that question. That's a, that's a, a great addition to it. And again, the, the point of me raising those other the other questions that people ask is not to say you shouldn't ask those. We talk yeah. about hedging and stuff all the time. We talk about all what, the time, like, right. And I think that's, it's like, it's healthy, 
actually, I think to have those combos, but it's the, it's the freak out to use the phrase you just said, like when folks are like, oh no, it's going down. I need to hedge. Right. And then you start to say like, like, how do I hedge like tomorrow? Like I'm going to, I'm going to dive into, you know, whatever I'm doing tomorrow. That's different. And then like thinking it through, like going deep, thinking about your own psychology, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think your question, like, what are you freaking about, out about? What's your time frame? I think that's like incredibly important. Um, and does it need to be worse than it actually would be anyway? There's another really great piece of advice, and it might be Jason Swig, or it might have come from uh, someone else. I've been reading so much Howard Marks that it could be in there. And it's almost to find someone that you can bounce ideas off of before you make drastic changes to your portfolio, especially when it's going down. It Call it a financial consultant or a counselor or just a good friend who actually knows what they're talking about. Because so often, if you go to someone else, they're going to help you find the right perspective. And that reminds me of an article I read this week, also in the Wall Street Journal. Um, Daniel Pink came out with uh, a breakdown saying regrets are actually a positive thing in life. But one of the things that he talks about there is if you're trying to coach yourself or learn from a past mistake, if you can think of things as a rational third party rather than yourself, you find that your brain makes more sense. So you get caught up in your own emotions you have to find a way to separate yourself from that, whether that's a friend or a colleague that can help you do that, like I use Dougals, or whether it's just separating yourself from the emotions of that situation, you're going to make a much better decision. Absolutely. And I, I think everyone can, maybe not everyone, but most people can relate to something even outside of investing where you do this. So like, think about that for yourself to like understand the types of situations we're talking about. It's like where, where something that seems like it's going to be net negative is about to happen. And then you start to do all this other, these other things like to make up for it. And it just turns out so much worse, right? People do it in relationships all the time. Oh, relationships like, is the perfect yeah. example. And, and Daniel Pink has a, he says, one of the questions you should ask yourself is if a friend was in this situation, what you would advise them to do, even though it's you, you know, it's you in this situation, but you think of it as if a friend, and then he went as far to say, and then write yourself an email as if it's to a friend with your name on it that says, here's my advice to you and here's what you're feeling. So you can go back and look at that uh, three months down the line. Very, really interesting stuff. He's a yeah. talented guy. Psychology, man. Psychology. Yeah. Uh, what's in your fishbowl? That's good, man. Thank you for bringing that up. Hey, just one off thing. I have a bunch of little things today, but like America has eight parking spaces for every car. And uh, there's an awesome article in Fast Company. I can put it on the Twitter if you want to dive deep, but about how urban planning evolved in America and about what that means for our growth and how that limits walkability and bikeability in so many of the suburban areas and uh, towns and communities that are rethinking that. Like they mentioned the city of Buffalo in New York and how downtown just kind of died and they said we have all this parking that no one actually uses anymore can we build on top of it you know like so that's a really interesting thought experiment for me the if you look at the entire united states they're saying about the area of west virginia is just parking lots we have one whole state of parking lots that's, that is why that's that's it's out of out of this world is this like a law of averages type thing because a brother can't find a parking lot a parking spot if he's trying to like <laughs> go downtown so is it more is it kind of well I'm, I'm curious if they broke it down like is it 
you mentioned Buffalo. Is it yeah. that like Buffalo has 900 parking spots per car that's there and New York City has negative six, you know? Or, or uh, like, Oh, great question. Great yeah. question. They didn't go into those specifics, but generally urban planning codes across the nation kind of evolved together. And we we said as a society, you know, something like if you have a thousand square feet, that means you need uh, three parking spots for a certain type of convenience store. If you're a restaurant and you have a thousand square feet, you might need six parking spots. It's like the fact that the the problem you're relaying is the fact that when you're looking for that one parking spot that's in demand, there's 99% of all the parking spots across Kansas and Nevada and and everywhere else that are completely vacant and probably get used one time a year. I mean, think of your any of your suburban malls, right? When is the place where that parking lot is full? Maybe on December 23rd. Yeah, it's that's like four the days a only year. time. So there's so much excess capacity yeah. in the system. But this is also a chicken egg conversation, right? Until you maybe remove some of the excess parking, that would create a demand for more public transportation, uh, more Ubers, you know, more other yeah. means that are less car dependent. It would also increase population density, would make which would make things walkable, bikeable, which would it, it's just uh, a cycle either way. And as America it appears like we chose to go completely towards the more parking side of the coin. And it'd be nice if we pulled that back a little bit in my eyes. I don't know where that um, happy medium is, but I think we're on the extreme right now. Yeah. We don't find happy mediums in this no. country. It's like, it's not how we, it's not how we roll. I love what you said a few weeks back that we are a country of excess, man. Like we just, we find something to do and we do it. We're crazy yeah. about it. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to hit on, can I grab onto that word excess and Please. pull some accession? That's not a thing out of the, <laughs> the fishbowl. So I'm, I'm actually going to, I'll double dip a little bit. One will just be a couple data points. And then I, I want to get your perspective on this recent, by recent, I mean a decade ago study. So a couple data points I'll mention is we don't, we mention sometimes, but don't often as frequently talk about startups, but okay. there was this piece in the New York times called it's all just wild tech startups reach a new peak of froth that when we're talking about what's happening in the public markets, right. And we, we discussed was that seven, eight months ago with Adam Burroughs, um, the startup investing piece, this couple data points I'll drop. This piece was saying, so there are more than 900 tech startups that are worth more than a billion dollars. So a billion dollar tech startup is they're called unicorns. Yep. Um, that's I, wild. That is yeah. that's absolutely wild. This used to be a, it used to seem like a handful, Doogles. You're saying there's 900? Yeah. And so, yeah, the reason that they're called unicorns was because when that term was coined, there were like very few of them. Um, and back in 2015, according to this piece, there were 80 of them. And when there are 80 of them, folks was like, what? Like we have gone out of control, right? Can someone please tell Jeremy Grantham? That this happened. Yeah, yeah. Right um, Get GMO online too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was 80 about seven years ago, and there are more than 900 now. Uh, U.S. startups raised $330 billion last year, which doubled 2020, which was $167 billion. And then we got to bring it to some NFTs here. OpenSea, yeah. which is the marketplace for NFTs, it's a 90 person startup. 
valued at $13.3 billion right now. Um, okay. <laughs> I wasn't gonna go I wasn't gonna go there. Just a side tangent on OpenSea. I don't know if OpenSea is a primary offender, but I read about this two weeks back, Diggles. So the way NFTs work, you have your your image that you're supposed to be the owner of, right? And you upload it to something like OpenSea and put it on blockchain, and then you can auction it off. Makes seems perfectly rational. Apparently, some marketplaces are not validating new images that get uploaded. So there might already be that NFT sold and worth, let's just 10,000 bucks. It might already be out there. Someone effectively, I'm simplifying here, takes a screenshot, uploads that to another NFT marketplace, or maybe in some of these worse abuses, the same marketplace sells the image that is not their own and claims that they have ownership for that. And there appears to be a gap in verification of ownership of that. How how tragic slash terrifying is that? Oh, man, this world. Oh, this world. (laughs) It it brings me I didn't intend to talk about this, but there's this book I read recently called The Drunkard's Walk. I don't know if you've read that, but it's about randomness. Uh I I recommend it. Uh, It's about randomness and how um, people have this like falsely, falsely innate, innate false view of statistics like we just can't do math yeah yep. like particularly again but uh one of the things that they brought up was they were looking at uh, box office hits how how box office hits can also be random like movie sales can be random and there was this test where they released the same movie like they a b tested releasing the same movie to see how much it <laughs> it would make like the exact same film yeah and one movie ended up making more than the other and they would have people that watch both movies and would like critique one and like say how the other one was better and they'd seen the same film and the, the, the point was basically to say like there's so many things that impact stuff like that like it's the um what you what you read that day like recent conversations you had your like current perspective on the world can change the way that you're viewing something and that like leads to quote-unquote randomness right yeah. because it like but anyway um that it makes it just makes me think about that like how if if you release the same image or sorry, two different people even release the same image. There's all yeah. the copyright stuff too, but then one could be worth a billion dollars and one could be worth six cents and it is the same thing. No, so that's, and that's worse in today's world because I don't I don't think you're thrifty enough to sell on eBay like I am, Diggles, but um, you can get caught. <laughs> he's laughing over there. You can get caught in these algorithms where you're either the first hit that everyone sees when they search for that sort of product or you're the last and that the difference in sales price is probably at least double if not more um you see that happen on social media with things that go and everything else sorry with the the luck point i gotta go back to um howard marks in the most important thing book i'm pretty sure it's chapter 16 if not it's chapter 17. he breaks down how outcomes don't lead to skill and as a society especially in the investment space we say, oh, this person is worth a hundred million bucks. They must be smart. And we don't look at the their process and say, but actually they played Russian roulette five times and just got lucky with the coin flips. Like that does not mean you're a good investor. There's a lot of people out there that just got lucky with coin flips. It's really good stuff. Speaking of that, if you don't mind, Diggles, because I do want to get back to your startup uh, stats. You know who didn't get lucky with coin flips? in uh january of last year who 
Melvin Capital Management. Oh no! Oh and yeah, my boy. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna call this. I'm gonna call him Gabe Plotkin, but it's probably you know I'm probably missing. He lost almost seven billion dollars in a month. Fifty-five percent of his portfolio, Dougals. And I don't want to dwell on this. I will say this is another good article that the Wall Street Journal did. But any ideas how you lose fifty-five percent of your portfolio in a month, Dougals? Last January, meme stocks and Reddit. With a combination of leverage and shorting. I mean, like, this is another guy. He's part owner of the Charlotte Hornets. I mean, he has, like, condos everywhere you could ever want to have a condo. He appears to be an incredibly talented investor. And so I just go back to the point that I end up over and over, which is like, but why all the leverage? Why are you making it riskier than it needs to be? It almost goes back to your Farnham Street article. Like, anyway, that's a good read. Let's get back to startups because that's way more interesting. Oh, that's actually enough on the startups. I just want to drop a couple hits there because we don't hit it very often. But can I talk about this study? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is excess specifically around wealth inequality. We've talked about wealth inequality like a good amount here. It's at all time highs. Um, at the time of this study, the top 1% owned like half of stuff, right? So that's it's just a like a little bit of people owning a whole bunch of stuff. Um, we've, we've discussed this. We've discussed like why it's important, not just from a, like a moral, social, ethical purpose, you could like take a stand, but also practically, it's hard for a society to stick around with like with excess levels of inequality because people naturally like get upset and, you know, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. What we've also touched on is we discussed like briefly, what can you do about it? And we've talked about Pilchetti's um, capital in the 21st century. And he brings up the R is greater than G and wealth taxes, you know, we discussed and we, we did talk to redistribute the bubble a year ago, right? All kinds of things there. Anyway, my boy, Dan Ariely, who is a Duke professor, a Duke Blue Devils professor as well. He's the professor of Blue Devils at Duke University. Uh, and he, he's, also, he's also the author of a predictably, predictably Irrational, which some folks may have read. He put together a paper with uh, Michael Norton from Harvard called Building a Better America, One Wealth Quintile at a Time. You sent this over to me a couple of weeks ago. I, I think it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, it's about a decade old, but hold, hold its weight. So what they did, I'll drop the methodology and then um, see if you have any initial reactions, we can keep going. What they did was instead of looking at like a bunch of statistics and economics and all that and saying, how do we fix inequality or what, what is the, maybe I should say this, what is the, the right blend of, of inequality? Yeah. They just asked a bunch of people. So they surveyed about 5,500 people in America and asked them which of three potential income distributions they would want for the U.S., and specifically, if they chose that those income distributions and were randomly assigned to them, and these are in quintiles, so five different groups of folks, and they said, yeah. which of these would you want if you were randomly assigned? So you could be the richest of the rich or the poorest of the poor at random, which would you want? And they were, they gave them three options. They were blind to what the options represented, but one was the current U.S. at that time. Yep. Like, this is what the U.S. looks like. One was an equal distribution so 20% 20% 20% 20% and the, the third was Sweden now again no one knew what what those were and Sweden's mm-hmm. between the equal and the US so makes sense yeah and i love the process here like that's mm-hmm. really clever because you you kind of hide people's natural biases 
uh, from selecting what they think is so-called fair. Exactly. Exactly. And there was a representative sample. So they looked at, uh, this was back in like 2011, I think is when they wrote this paper. And so the, when they look at representative, it was demographics from like gender identity perspective. They also looked at how people voted in the prior election. Um, and it was basically the way that folks voted. So even from a political standpoint, it broke down to Bush carry voters in the same way that the election came out. They looked at census data. So representative sample. So if you have the U.S., you have Sweden, and you have equal, yeah. what did Americans choose? So I didn't make it all the way through this, but I would guess they chose Sweden. They chose Sweden. And overwhelmingly. <laughs> So, well, I'll say this. They overwhelmingly chose either Sweden or equal. Okay. So of, of the people that they, um, that they surveyed here, 10% chose the breakdown that the U.S. actually had. 90% chose either Sweden or equal. And of that 90%, it was, it was almost half and half. So of the total, 47% chose Sweden, 43% chose equal. Add that up, you get 90%. But Sweden was the winner. And the way that do you Sweden want me to make them, like the libertarian Chicago school free market guy joke at this point? Or it sounds like a long joke. Go ahead. This is why communism is initially popular, but just initially, Diggles. And he didn't so, laugh. Never mind. Let's cut that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, continue. <laughs> um, so, so the way the way that Sweden breaks down again, this is in quintiles, is the top twenty percent of people own about eighteen percent of of wealth. Yeah. The second quintile is 38%. Then you go 15%, 21%, 11%. And so the tops and the bottoms are the, the, the two smallest or, or among the two smallest there, right? That's the way that Sweden breaks down. And that's what people said that they wanted. So then they, that, that, that was like the first thing they did was they said, which of these do you want? The second thing they did, which I also think is interesting is they asked, where do you think we are? So this is what you said that you want. Now, where Ooh, do you think the U.S. Yeah. Where do you think the U.S. actually is? Uh, spoiler alert: No one knew. Like, no one knew actually where we were. This one changed a little bit, though. So the other one, it was uh, like, no matter what political affiliation you had, where you kind of sat, people wanted Sweden, right, or equal for yeah. the most part. This one, overwhelmingly, like if you take it in aggregate, people underestimated the amount of inequality in the U.S. But the wealthier someone was, the less they underestimated it. Kind of right. It was so it's it's like yeah, because they kind of see that in their day to day that they have uh, privilege and opportunity that is not afforded to everyone. So so that like that kind of went typical. But but regardless, everyone still had some level of underestimation. And so the where the U.S. was at, at this point when they did it was it was about eighty four percent of wealth was owned by the top twenty percent of people. Okay. Where folks thought that we were was more like 55% of wealth was owned by the top 20% of people. So still not equal, but they thought it was less not equal. Well, and earlier you said about that the top 1% owns about 50% of wealth. So people think the top 20% owns what actually the top 1% owns. Yeah, correct? exactly. Yeah, that's a gosh. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. I, I understand that fallacy. Like that's one it's really tough to wrap your head around the top 1% owning 50-ish percent of all yeah. the wealth in yeah. this country. And then they were asked what their ideal would be. So this is, not, this is not the blind way that they did before, but this is just you know among their second task. And they said the top 20% would own about 30%. So in summary, 
this from of the second piece, people were saying like, we actually we think it shouldn't be equal. Like if I take my actual situation, I don't think it should yeah. be equal, but I think it should be much more equal than it is today and actually much more equal than I think it is today. <laughs> and so like that's a it's a compounding force. Um, I think that it's less unequal. Right. I think there's lower inequality than there is. And my ideal would be even less than that. So if you compare the ideal to the actual, it's a vast difference from where we are versus where, where people would want us to be. Well, and then it's my assumption, because as you mentioned, this, this great breakdown is like 10 years old, that wealth inequality is even worse today than it was at this time. I mean, gosh, I love this stuff. It's just so interesting to me. And clearly everyone seems to say, well, let's say at least 90% of people surveyed for this piece of work seem to say that they want things to be closer to the Sweden model than the US model. The question yeah. is, Dougals, if they're willing to pay taxes like that. Uh, and I bet the, the, answer the answer is no. The answer is no. This is the not yeah. in my backyard yeah. thing, right? Yeah. Not yet. NIMBY, NIMBY, NIMBY everywhere. Yeah. And I think the other piece is, and this gets to your, um, your hilarious joke that you made, <laughs> around wh- where people like intellectually where they they kind of want to be um versus impracticality because i believe and what the reason i thought about this with excess why i tied it to your statement on excess is that if you look at the i don't know what the actual definition of the american dream is but whatever the idea of the american dream i think or the american promise maybe is the ability like the us technically right, gives the ability for folks to be in the 84, the, the, the group that owns the 84% of, you know, yep. assets. And that's a thing, I think that when, when you have the breakdown, like Sweden has, it's like, well, you can't get a lottery ticket. Like we want to be able to log into Robinhood, get on like 99% leverage and buy AMC because yep. that might be a lot of ticket. And in the place where, 18% of people are in that top echelon. Like it's, it's not likely that you can get there. Now it might be equally unlikely that you get there right in this world, but it feels like, like you see it, you see the, the Bezos, right. That, that, come, or Steve jobs, right. That comes from fairly humble beginnings to get to something. Right. Um, whereas the case might be more like the Bill Gates that comes from not humble beginnings and like, Oh gets, yeah. gets to something. Yeah. Right? Bill Gates had a lot of advantages. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. So, uh, so yeah, I thought it was a really, it's an interesting piece. I'm always uh, intrigued by this kind of stuff. Thank you for sending it over. I love reading this. Yeah, no, I appreciate the breakdown. Cause I didn't get a chance to do a deep dive. Let me, let me tie up one thing. This is from six or eight episodes back, but you sparked my memory when you talked about lotto tickets in 2021, everyone's favorite. Well, no, uh, some people's favorite lotto ticket was, was crypto. And I kept going to Dougal's and being like, Hey, I don't love the thing. I'm not claiming it's a good investment, but it's doing some good. You know, we talked about Afghanistan. We talked about all these other things. What really breaks my heart and it shouldn't, but it just does. It makes me sad, I guess, is like with the most recent crypto crash, I know there's some girls schools in Afghanistan that get paid in Bitcoin because they didn't feel like they had a stable financial system. We've talked about Turkey and um, people transferring assets to crypto. It's, it's really unfortunate that it's still so volatile that people that thought they were escaping, governments that didn't have their back, 
probably ended up in the same situation and in some cases ended up worse off than they would have before. So that just, I don't know. I just wanted to mention it because that's too bad. Yeah, it is. And it's why we talked about it because it's, it's the movie that, that tends to play over and over again. That you have, yep. you have the folks that are in the worst position that see a way out, that grab onto the thing that turns out to be a fading. And I'm not saying that Bitcoin is a fading or any of that nature, but but oftentimes no, I know it what turns you're out saying. to be. Yeah, right? uh, I totally know what you're saying. It's hard. What's next in your fishbowl? Uh, I want to touch on one thing. There's an article on PortfolioCharts.com, and this really was last week when it was a tough week in the market. They highlighted uh, four top portfolios that they claim to be recession proof. And I always like reading about this stuff. So they compared like 20 different portfolios and then said these four over the last five crashes has have performed better than everything else. And we're talking about like in 1974, when the real drawdown of the total stock market was almost 35%, uh, a portfolio called the permanent portfolio actually went up about a percent. Um, a portfolio called the All Seasons Portfolio, which is based on uh, Ray Dahlia, only went down like 8%. So they break down all these things. And I don't want to dwell on it unless you find it interesting. But these are awesome stable portfolios, or they were for the last 40 years when bonds went from 18% to 2%, you know? Because they all have a heavy component of bonds. I get you mean, really you mean concerned. When the interest rates, you mean when bond interest rates? Yeah. When, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I get really concerned about saying what happened in the last 40 years means it's going to work five years from now. I just don't necessarily think it's that simple because we could see bond rates rising, which would mean bond prices go down. And that would really hurt these portfolios in maybe the next recession. So as much as I love reading stuff like this and thinking through the hedging or the equity insurance or whatever words you use, and I think there is a place for some of these portfolios that are heavy in bonds and sometimes heavy in gold or commodities or real estate, I get concerned that people are saying the past is a predictor of future returns and not realizing how different the world is today. I'm glad you brought this up. I, I fully agree with it. And going back to the point that we talked about earlier, when people might rush into things like this because of the overly simplified thematic nature of it, like the permanent portfolio, 25% stocks, 25% bonds, 25% cash, 25% gold, right? Look at the situation that we're in right now. Who knows what's going to happen in the next year? But let's just imagine, let's imagine stocks go down. Yep. Now let's imagine 7% inflation. Now let's imagine. So your cash, so your cash is losing purchasing power like crazy. Exactly. Now let's so imagine like, <laughs> rate raise. That's where you're yeah, going, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so now you have a situation where stocks are down, interest rates are up, therefore bonds are down. Long-term bonds, specifically, especially, are down. Um, high inflation, so cash is down. Question mark gold. Like so, you're basically. You, it's if, a if coin believe, flip. Yeah. So if you if, if you believe in the permanent portfolio, maybe just buy gold. Like that, that's actually because otherwise I'm not saying to do that by any means. No, let's let's just go out of the way. Do not do that. There's no, no, there's no diversification to that. No, exactly. Your, your point though, it is well-founded. Like it's, someone is going to read an article like this and be like, you know what? 
I'm not having fun in the market right now. I'm switching to the permanent portfolio. It worked in 1974. And all I'm saying is it's not 1974, people. Like, th this is not, don't do your first level thinking, do your second level thinking and actually think through these cycles because this article has good intentions and these portfolios are well-founded and go back. I mean, many of these that like the permanent portfolio, there's some people that claim that even goes back hundreds of years when people talked about diversifying assets between cash and commodities and like equities of the time. Uh, it's tried and true, but just don't think that just don't be completely unaware of your surroundings. So that's my whole point. Good to read about, good to understand, and look at the history and the data and the history. But to and your point, second level thinking. A little bit. Yeah. Second level thinking. All right. What's next for you? This isn't a deep fishbowl item per se, but, and I know you don't like to talk about these things, but I want to drop a, like a, just a little sousson of a, uh, of a data point over the last week in the market. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, but it's, uh, it's interesting. I'm not going to look at it in aggregate, but uh, the, some of the volatility that's happening right yeah. now is like entertaining. I, sorry. For some folks, it's not entertaining. I don't mean like it's like if your portfolio is losing all its value and that's driving anxiety for you, that is not entertaining. I just mean from a like, what the heck are people doing perspective? So I've gotten into this rhythm, um, just like, you know, Jamaican bobsled team, like feel the rhythm, feel the rhyme. <laughs> yeah, I've gotten into this, this rhythm where so the market will close. I'll look at futures way up. Futures are way up. Go have dinner, hang out with the fam, you know, do a little work, go to bed. I wake up in the morning. Futures way down, right? <laughs> 9.30 ET in the morning uh, comes around. Markets yeah. up <laughs> when the futures were just down. Then around. Well, like, no, hey, the futures were up and then the futures were down. No, yeah, then... so the, the futures were up at night. Futures were down in the morning. Then when the market actually opens, the market is up. And then in the afternoon, the market's down. I'm like, how, like, how did all four seasons, market seasons, occur at that point? I think it was last Monday, might've been Monday or Tuesday, but it's like last Monday, the NASDAQ composite index, full NASDAQ was yep. down almost 5% during the day and ended up like a half a point up or so, it's like something. It was, it was Monday. Yeah. Um, like, I was doing some, re yeah, it, that was absolute craziness. And th this is why it's the appropriate time to, uh, I mean, I love my portfolio right now. It's a bunch of deep value conservative stuff. And like, I'm ready for my beach vacation for 18 months and then to look at the thing later because it's going to be painful to get there. But once we get to the other side of the chaos, the volatility, like some people are going to be happy. <laughs> Others are not. <laughs> yeah. It's the uh, I can't always say. I can't always ask the question of what's the psychology of what folks are doing right now. Cause there's a lot of computer algorithms that are doing things too. So it's not always uh, people, but like, it's just weird that like 10 minutes ago, I was like hating the stock market. I was like, why did I ever get in the stock market selling all this stuff? And then I go, why am I not in the stock market? Like, how am I not in the stock market? I mean, this, this volatility is absolutely wild. And even if your stocks, you always talk about your stocks are like hated, you know, and yeah. you, you love that fact. I think right now they might just be forgotten. And that's great. Like, if you just forget that there are certain stocks <laughs> that like exist right now, because the stocks that aren't forgotten are the ones that have been, you know, going up orders of magnitude over the last couple of years right now um, that folks are getting out of. But it's just a, it's interesting. 
forgotten is an interesting term because it is one of those crazy days, like a Monday, where I was like, well, I should probably look. And my portfolio was up like, I don't know, 0.2% or so. Like nothing happened in my, they were just, like you said, completely forgotten. Like no one even traded those stocks that day. <laughs> Everyone else one. was freaking out about QQQ. <laughs> Oh, actually, I'll, I'll throw I'll throw out one one other one other thing I sent to you um, this week that oh yeah the, there were like there were two two things that I read just back to back that just made me chuckle because it's interesting to read these things back to back. So one was about Sark, the what you've talked about all the time, yeah. right? And yeah. how how Tuttle Capital Management decided to do Sark, and then I was like, oh, you know, chuckle, chuckle. I know Skippy's in it awesome whatever we talk about Kathy Wood all the time then I scroll down like three articles later it's how there's a leveraged version of Kathy Wood's ARK like A-R-K-K that's about to get launched and I went how are those two things in the same like paradigm right now like someone is then I then I had to woosah myself I had to woosah myself woosah so the leverage thing you sent over her portfolio is already like it's already crazy gambly like why would you throw leverage on top of that if you have if you have research i don't believe anything i'm about to say by the way but it's for the sake of conversation if you have research that shows that what is being held is going to produce 40 percent annual returns over the next five years whoa, you, whoa, better whoa, whoa. <laughs> you better leverage you better leverage no no you it would be irresponsible. If you're gonna make, not to if you're gonna make forty percent a year over the next five years, you uh, better leverage. You want to stay in the game. Like the the only way to not get rich if you're making if you think, which means you're insane, that you're making those returns, then you wait five years and you be diligent and you trust your process and you be scared like hell that those sort of returns are going to bring additional competition to the space, which is going to erode your returns, which is going to ultimately hurt you. You don't go, Oh, Hey, I'm already at the casino. And it seems like red has the same probability as black. Like, Oh, just, you know, give me your jacket. I'm throwing that on the table too. Like <sighs> wiser words had never been spoken. I think, I think that's absolutely brilliant. And I was talking to somebody yesterday about Warren Buffett right? And Charlie Munger. And we've discussed when we were discussing greatness and Tom Brady and Warren Buffett comparison last yeah, year, and we yeah. just discussed longevity and how that provides. So we discussed two things. One was how the heck do these two men from Omaha end up living to 175 years old, drinking Coca-Cola and eating peanut brittle? That was, <laughs> that was number one we discussed. Well, Munger's not from Omaha, just to be clear, but yes. <laughs> but they, they grew up, to, like he moved there at some point. I thought they like kind of, they were there from a young age together. Like, uh, maybe. Maybe, not, okay. maybe not grew up. I don't know if he grew okay. up, but anyway. So, uh, so that was number one. Uh, but number two is they're sitting on, I actually don't know what the cash pile is right now, but let's call it $150 billion. Like it's yeah, a very something large huge. Yeah. cash pile. And you have everything that you just said, which I think is absolutely right. But you have people in the psychology where they're saying, how do we double down, triple down leverage to get into this market right now? And you've got Buffett and Munger that are just sitting on cash. Like it's the hardest thing to do, I think, for like the average person is just to sit on that much cash. And when when things get to where they get to, the brilliance that is like, I think, uh, I don't know how long they're going to live. 
right? But Munger's what, 97 or something like yeah. that right now? So, yeah. you know, it, it's as like a final sign of patience and brilliance. I would love to see both of them be able to make it to the point where they could deploy this in like such a way that is like even more legacy producing than what they've done so far. No. So get your popcorn ready. Right. I mean, I, you're, I love the way you articulated that I cannot wait or I, let's just say, I'm so hopeful that Buffett gets to deploy a cash pile in a bubble pop situation sometime in the next three to five years because it will be absolute brilliance and he'll just be hitting home runs left and right. That would be really, really fun to watch as like a market nerd. Um, I'm totally with you. And yeah, maybe I'm wrong. I think, uh, I was thinking Munger and his California home, you know, in his adult life. Um, I don't know much about his childhood, so I could be wrong with my facts there. They definitely knew each other early on, but I forget that formal connection. Cool. Anything else in your fishbowl? Uh, no, that's it, man. So guys, thanks so much. We had more uh, subscribers, supporters of the show rolling this week. We really appreciate that. You can hit that up on skippydoogles.supercast.com. Uh, but we have a one-stop shop now. You can just go to skippydoogles.com and find everything, including latest show episodes, articles. Um, there's some really nice stuff out there. Check it out. Thank you. And always rate and review the podcast. Get more people to listen to us. So appreciate you all. 